Well, good morning. Happy New Year for those of you that weren't here uh, last week and sort of had the official Happy New Year on the actual day. Welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm part of the uh, teaching team. And uh, today we're continuing in a series that we've been at for a while on the book of Hebrews. Hebrews uh, is a letter written to some people called the Hebrews. They were uh, Jews, right? So they're Jewish by birth and by religion who had become followers of Jesus. And the book is really addressed to some of the struggles that they faced as followers of Jesus to sort of slip back into the old ways of doing things and the old ways of relating to God as, a, as a contrasted with some pretty radical ways that uh, Jesus and Jesus' followers um, were introduced into following him. So uh, the theme of the series, the theme of the study, anybody remember what the theme is? Jesus is better than, right? He's better than the angels. We looked at that a while back. He's better than Moses, better than the Old Testament priesthood. Um, as weeks have gone on, you know, we've seen how the things that Jesus has ushered in, the things that he has brought forward are better than, right? So, you know, we have uh, this tabernacle in heaven that is mentioned versus the old tabernacle, kind of the tent and the way that the priest had to go in. We have um, the new covenant that Jesus mediates and how much better that is than the old covenant. And uh, today we'll talk a little bit about this, but we have his blood, which is so much better than the blood of animals. Right. Or any other kind of blood. So I have uh, I have kind of a goal. I'm, I have that engineering mind. You know, one day I'll I'll learn to, to speak up here and not have the engineer kind of go through click, click, click. But uh, I do have some goals today. And uh, one goal I have is today to help you understand how much better the hope that we have in Jesus is than anything else that we could hope in. Anything else that we could place our hopes in. And secondly, I want to give you some ways in which you can grow in that hope, the way that you can, ways that you can build up hope. So with that as background, uh, we'll see if the magic clicker is going to cooperate today. Doesn't appear to be. Yeah. All right. So how about I click? You mind clicking for me? Very good. So we're going to read through today's passage. It's in, it's in uh, the middle of chapter 10. Last week, Randy covered the first part of chapter 10. And next week, uh, someone else will be picking up the last part of chapter 10. But we're looking at verses 19 through 31. So follow along as I read this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into that most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. On to the next one. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. 
There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, who have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit, who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whew. I thought the middle section was going to be uh, an easy section, but wow, there's a lot in there, uh, way more than I could possibly hope to cover or do any justice to in a, in a short time this morning. But there are really a couple of themes that I want to emphasize today. And uh, first one has to do with the blood of Jesus. And so as I do that, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this word of God, challenging to us, uh, life-giving to us. Lord, it, it tells us what you're like. And we thank you, too, for Jesus, who is the word, right, the revelation of God to us. And I pray this morning that you would help us, Lord, to have open hearts and open minds to receive from you that which you want to impart to us. Lord, we trust you. We trust that you're good. And we just ask you to meet us in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Okay, it's not going to work, so I'll let you go ahead and click to the next one. So let's talk about the blood. So that first verse 19 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And if you continue on a few verses later, For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So first of all, you know, we have full access to God. Right? There is no barrier to it. To heaven's most holy place. Whatever that is, right? It's in contrast, right? Heaven's most holy place is in contrast to, if you think back some chapters in Hebrews, to the Holy of Holies. You know, we had that whole thing about how the Old, the Old Testament priest would go into the, the holy place, and then once a year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. He went in there to make atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. He always went in there with blood. He was in that place behind the curtain. This is the curtain that got torn when uh, Jesus died on the cross, right, that was ripped from the top to the bottom. So here we're told that we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. This is the real place, right? The one on earth was kind of uh, a shadow, just a preview of coming attractions, and not a very good preview at that, right? I mean, we really need to kind of engage our minds and to imagine what would and I think when we get into Hebrews chapter 12, we'll get some more uh, definition around what that holy place is like where Jesus is. But we have a contrast here, and we have this parallel between the tabernacle and the holy of holies and heaven's most holy place. And the point is that in Christ, we're allowed to enter, right? We're allowed to go into that heavenly parallel, heaven's most holy place, the place where Jesus sits at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. You should soak on that. We should think about that. What the heck does that mean, right? But because of the blood of Jesus, we're allowed to do that. In fact, we're not allowed to, like, tiptoe in timidly, right? We're not told to, you know, cover our face in shame, hide ourselves under a blanket. We're told, come boldly. 
come boldly into His presence because of the blood of Jesus. Why? Why? All right. It's all about the blood. It's all about the blood. If you read uh, back in chapter 9, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So we have this thing about blood and forgiveness. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but I'll just say that the blood of Jesus is the game changer. It's the thing that makes everything completely different. Uh, in chapter 10 in the passage that Randy covered last week, we, we read that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So all those uh, sacrifices that the Old Testament priests offered, they really couldn't obtain forgiveness. They didn't have the power to set us free. There's only one kind of blood that's been poured out that is able to set us free. That's the blood of Jesus. So we have this blood. And what is the blood of Jesus, right? It's the blood of the living God. It comes from a perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice of somebody that never sinned, somebody that never did anything wrong and who willingly, voluntarily laid down his life for us. Only this blood has the power to forgive sins. Only this blood has the power to cleanse our guilty consciences, right? To take away whatever guilt we carry. And because of that blood, we have full and welcomed access to God. That's it. There's nothing else. Now think a little bit about the most holy place, right? So can you imagine like a palace or you've seen pictures of these kind of grand places or you know, maybe Monte Carlo is a place that sort of conjures up beauty in your mind or some island paradise. You know, it would be like we had uh, first-class tickets to that place and an and a invitation to go in and, you know, we had complete access to the most beautiful place that we could imagine, right? This, this is kind of a weak analogy there. The thing about it is, even if we had the money to do that, right, we wouldn't really belong there. I mean, we know that we're not really those guys, right? We're not really the rich and famous. We're not, you know, part of that beautiful people set. But here we get to come into the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most incredible place that is, and I won't say that was created because it wasn't created. It is. It exists. It's where Jesus is, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And it's because of the blood that we have welcomed access. Now, you'll have more access if you behave, right, if you're good. No, you have all the access in the world just because of his blood. If you, uh, if you feel bad about yourself, if you feel bad about the life that you've lived, you know, he'll, he'll take pity and he'll welcome you even more. No. There's nothing that we can do, good or bad, right? Nothing we can do in terms of effort or feeling or promise. It actually has nothing to do with us. It has to do with Jesus. It has to do with his blood. His blood is like that invitation to the ball. You know, it comes from somebody else to us. We don't deserve it. We can't really, you know, we try, but we can't really add to it. We can't take away from it. It's just there. So that's, that's a foundational understanding of our relationship to God and access to God that we need to get sort of cemented into our minds. It's not because we try hard. It's not because we're good people. It's not because we believe the right things. And it's not because we're the world's worst, and we know it, and we feel bad, and we're so sorry, 
and we wish we were better. None of that matters to him. He took care of it. It's done. What he wants is for us to come. Come right in. Come boldly. Get in here. This is where I'm at. Come with me. Come to me. Okay? So, um, click. I, this thing's just going to drive me crazy. There is a, uh, a warning in this passage, and um, what it says is that, dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. And if we read on, it says, just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit, who brings God's mercy to us. So this is, uh, if you've been tracking, this is the fourth warning that we've come across in Hebrews. The first one was back in chapter 2. It warned about not listening carefully to the truth and then possibly drifting away from it over time. In chapter 4, we were warned about the possibility of failing to enter God's rest, his promised rest due to unbelief or a lack of faith, right? Lack of grabbing a hold of it. In chapters 5 and 6, we were warned about being spiritually dull and failing to grow into maturity as followers of Jesus and even of the possibility of turning our backs on God. And then today, we're warned about disrespecting the blood of Jesus. Probably doesn't quite do justice to what's being said here, but I'll just use that word. So one of the things when you come across a warning like this is, you know, well, who's it for? Right? It's to them, right? Not to us. And, um, you know, and, and I think in some sense it is to them, but it's also to us, right? All of us, you know, we have the potential to drift away, to be overcome with doubt, to become spiritually dull, right? Just doesn't matter, right? Not interested in growing up in the mature followers of Jesus, And we have the potential to disregard the blood of Jesus, and I'll talk a little bit about that today. So my idea here is that, you know, any time that we try to add something to what's been done by the blood, we're disregarding the blood. We're disregarding what Jesus has done in giving his blood for us. Any time we say, Lord, if if you will do this, I promise to do that, right? If you'll do something for me in exchange for me doing something for you, We're disregarding the blood because the blood's already settled the matter. There's no more favor that we could have from God than the favor that has already been showered upon us in his blood. Whenever we pray like he's the lottery, right? Like somehow God, you know, just let me win your favor this time. We're disregarding the blood and we're trampling on the Son of God, right? I mean, Whenever we play the lottery, assuming there are some of us that do that, you know, and we think that's the solution to our financial troubles. In a way, we're sort of like, God, just, you know, give me something big so I can sort of have all my problems solved. We're sort of disregarding what he's already done for us and pouring out his blood for us. Whenever we doubt him, we doubt that he's good, we doubt that he loves us, we doubt that, you know, he's really for us, we're disregarding the blood, the costly blood. Right? The blood that he poured out. The blood that is the thing that lets us know he is for us. He's willing to die for us so that we can have a way home, so that we can have full access to him. So I guess just to kind of close out my thoughts on the blood, 
What I would say is today we need to settle the matter about the blood. You know, I'd like you to leave here today and not have any doubt that the way that we relate to God, the thing that allows us to relate to him at all, is the blood of Jesus poured out. And so we can be there with him in heaven's most holy place. We can be right there with the living God, and we don't have to feel ashamed. In fact, it says we're there without a spot or a blemish or a wrinkle. We stand before him without any faults at all. He just doesn't see it. Now, we see it, and we're all hung up by it, and we feel bad about it, and we wish we were different. But he doesn't see it. He doesn't care about it anymore. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to enter into relationship with him in heaven's most holy place. So if you've been kind of, does God really care? Does he really love me? Or, you know, gee, I'm going to try harder so that God will turn his face towards me, right? That's all wrong. It's already been done. And decide today that I'm done with that, right? Decide today that because of his blood and only because of his blood, not because of me, good or bad, I have full and welcome access to God. Okay. On to the second theme. Um, maybe you can click. If I, uh, if I say the word India, what do you think of? Click again. Little flock. Okay, what else? What comes to mind? What's that? Poverty. Huh? How about the country? What's it like? Spicy food, warm. Colorful. Good. Sweaty. How about Australia? If I say Australia, what comes to mind? Kangaroo. All right, good. Okay, so click. So, this is kind of some interesting stuff here. Um, on the left, there are a couple of, this is the front and back side, or the observe and the uh, reverse of a coin. I learned that looking up uh, a little bit about these coins. So on the left is a, a 1918 Indian rupee. It's silver. And the image on the front of it is the image of King George V. So he was... Uh, he was a monarch, you know, during the time of the British Empire, and he was uh, in all of the dominions of the empire, and he was also emperor of India. Um, and so you see his image there, and on the back you see Indian rupee, you know, one rupee, and then you see a, a pattern there, right? You see all these flowers, and there's sort of an image of India, you know, abundance, flowers, somebody mentioned color. You know, so you see sort of the image of the kingdom on the backside. Well, King George V, uh, he lived, you know, during the First World War. He died in 1936. He had two sons. He had a son, Edward, and he had a son, uh, George. Actually, it was like Albert something something George, but at any rate, he, he was known by George. And uh, when King George V passed away in 1936, his son Edward became Edward VIII, king of United Kingdom and all of the dominions of the kingdom and emperor of India. Problem was that Edward wanted to marry this divorced American woman, sort of a uh, rich and famous type person, and was advised that you won't be able to do that and also be king of England. And so he ended up abdicating the throne. Less than a year after he was, you know, went through the coronation, right, he abdicated the throne. And his brother, younger brother, George, so remember this movie, The King's Speech, that's been out? That's that guy, George. 
George became King George VI right at the time that you know Ireland declared independence. The Nazis started coming into power. They ended up being at war with Germany, at war with Italy, at war with Japan. Um, all kinds of things happened in poor, stuttering King George VI time. Um, so what you have there is you have a, a 1943 Australian penny, and on the back of it is what? Kangaroo. Matt. Can anybody catch here? That's the rupee. You can pass those around. So that's those coins right there. And kind of the, the point I want to make is there's a king on one side, right? King George the, the fifth or King George the sixth. And on the back side is the kingdom, right? It's the thing that he's king of. It's the representation of it, right? A king without a kingdom is kind of at least sad, right? <laughs> and not really... A king, right? You're a king of something. And so king and kingdom, they're two sides of the coin. Okay? That's the point. Two sides of the coin. Got to, happen to have another one of these. Boy, it was interesting. You know, I, I was invited to a Hindu wedding uh, probably back in 2005, one of my you know, first times in India. And they gave a little, what's that thing that you get at the reception? What is that, a favor? Yeah, and this one was a little pouch, and it had some coins in it. And I had no idea what the coins were. I thought they were kind of like fake things. But I dug them out the other day, and there they are. It's King George V and <laughs> King George VI and rupee and an Australian penny. And so it's just kind of an interesting story here. It's an interlude to talk about, click, the next topic, which is faith and hope. So we have this passage in uh, in 10.23 about holding tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. And I want you to understand faith and hope are like that coin. Anytime you're like fingering a coin, right? You have a coin in your pocket, you're sticking one in the meter if we do that anymore besides your credit card nowadays. But, you know, it's faith and hope are two sides of the same coin. They don't have meaning one without the other. So in chapter 11, verse, verse 1, faith is defined as confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen, right? It's assurance about the things we can't see. What we hope for will actually happen. And then we're told a little bit later in chapter 10 that the righteous will live by faith, right? So what's faith? Faith is assurance or confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen, and today's passage, we're told, let's hold tightly without wavering. So, like, not, oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. So the question is, what is the hope that we affirm, right? What is that about? What is it that we hope will actually happen? So that when we're living by faith, right, when we're exercising faith, we're living as if that hope is actually going to happen. We need to understand that. So that's kind of the second thing I'm hoping to, to come across today. So this will be, uh, I'll tell you when to click. So click. All right. So I want, to, I want to give you kind of a visual way of thinking about this topic, kind of two ways of looking at life. So click. So this is kind of all the people in the world, right? There they are. Click. And in, in the middle of them is the cross or Jesus, right? He's sort of at the center of life. And all these people are around. Click. 
And then there's this circle, right? And there's people inside the circle. And there's people outside the circle, right? So the people inside the circle are those that believe, right? They are related to Jesus in some way, and so they believe. And the people, of course, outside the circle then don't believe, right? And, you know, it's important that we're inside the circle, that we believe and that we're going to go to heaven to be with Jesus. And it's a way of looking at life, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this way of looking at life. I'm just saying this is a way that people will look at life, okay? Now, you know, if we think we're one of those that's on the inside of the circle, that we have this promise of God that we're going to inherit, whatever it is, we also hope that those that we love, right, the people that we care about, that they're going to be inside the circle as well. I mean, it would be terrible, right, to think about leaving this life and going on to the next and those people that we love and care about not being inside the circle. And and even for some inside the circle, and I'm not going to say for everybody, but for some, Man, all those people on the outside, it's, it's a point of sadness, and we long to see them come inside the circle. Okay, So that's a way of looking. So click. Different view. Same set of dots, but they're all moving. They're moving in all kinds of directions. They're going forward towards the center. They're going sideways. Some of them are kind of squiggly, like they can't figure out which way to go. They're just sort of drifting along. Go ahead. Click. And there's Jesus in the center. Click. And from the center, you know, Jesus is, is sort of reaching out, right? He's reaching out. One more click. And he's, he's looking further and further out, and he's looking for people. And so in this view, there's not a clear circle, right? It's not so clear, like, who's in and who's out. Now, maybe that's a little unsettling to some people. But, you know, when you look at a person, do you know for sure kind of where they're at? Do you know absolutely without any doubt where a person's heart is at? Do you know that somebody who's far off, who's on their deathbed, doesn't have an encounter with Jesus? I mean, and does it really matter? I mean, is it that important to us that we must know the hard rule of who's in and who's out? I'm just saying it's a way of looking at people different than it's a defined line, you're in, you're out. If you're not in, get in, you know, or you're going to be out. This is like Jesus is looking. He's looking out. He's moving out. He's wanting to draw people to him. And people, some near him, are kind of moving in the wrong direction, and some far away are moving in the right direction, right, towards him. And some are just kind of flaking along there, and others are just don't know what they're doing at all. So the point of all this is... Just different ways of looking at life, different ways of thinking about this, the meaning of, of life and the purpose of life and kind of how we live our lives. And so with that as a framework, kind of those two images, just keep those in your mind, I want to talk about three ways in which we can uh, deal with the issue of hope. So click on to the first one. First one is you know, living without hope. So to live without hope means that this life... This one that we're living is it, right? When we die, it's done. So, in Ephesians, Paul says, In those days you were living apart from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So if you you are one of those 
people that says, you know, this is it, right? This life is all there. There's probably a couple of ways that you can then move forward with that understanding. One is, well, if this is it, you know, let's eat, drink, and be merry, right? Because tomorrow we die. That's sort of what we get in the Corinthian passage. You only go around once in life. Let's take care of number one, right? I got my bucket list. I want to make sure I get all the things clicked off my bucket list before I leave. And so you would naturally just make it, this is all about this life and it's all about my satisfaction in this life and, and my way, finding my way in this life. On the other side, you may say, well, if this is all there is, you look around at the world and I go, well, that's, you know, that's pretty depressing, right? So you may, you may take a different view. You may take a more fatalistic view of life that, well, if this is all there is, what's the point, right? What is the point? I mean, if you're just, no, no matter what you do, if you're just going to die, what's the point? So you could either have a, I just satisfy myself with things so I don't have to think about what comes at the end, or I become depressed and sort of, you know, fatalistic about life because this is all there is, and neither one is, is really satisfying. I mean, I, I guess I think in a way the people with no hope, I find some hope there because there's a chance that as you're pursuing, you know, happiness in life, that at some point you'll say, you know, this isn't enough. This isn't really satisfying. Or, as you're sitting there thinking, is this all there is? You may be asked the question, is there something more? Right? So there's the no hope option. Okay, click on to the next one. Second option with regard to hope, I'm going to call it vague hope. The best word I could come up with. You know, the idea of vague hope is that, well, we there is more to this life than just this life, right? There is something afterwards. There's, you know, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to be with God. I don't know exactly what that means, you know, and it's sort of sometime off in the future, but that's what's going to happen. So I'm not without hope. I'm just not too sure what it all means, right? So vague hope is uh, I'm not really too clear on what the future holds, I know there's some future, and, you know, I think about it at funerals, right? Every time there's a funeral, I'm like, hmm, you know, what does happen when you die? Where is that person? Where did they go, right? What happened to their spirit? I see their body. I saw it go in the ground. Or if somebody gets cancer, like has a threat, then you think about, oh, gosh, you know, need to think about what's next. But for most of us, right, we just live. We don't really think about, like, it's going to end right away, Right? And I, I'm going to say that I think a lot of people that are that call themselves Christians actually live with a vague hope, right? A vague sense of what it's all about. And some symptoms that I would propose about vague hope are, for example, you only pray when things get desperate, right? When it really hits the fan, then it's like, oh, God, help, please, right? I am, I've really messed it up this time. I need your help. Uh, or you pray to God like, you know, please, 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 just this once, let me win the lottery, right? Just let me shower some favor upon me, right? Because I'm really desperate. I really need it. Somehow we have to convince him that he should do something for us. Or we live, there's that future, but we care an awful lot about how we live right now, right? Our security, our comfort, our safety, you can't go there. You'd be crazy to go there. It's dangerous there, right? We live sort of 
trying to protect our life. And I, I'm going to say that those are all symptoms of not being clear on the hope that we have in God. We need to be clear on what the hope is. We need to be people that live with full hope. So if I ask you, uh, what are the three R's of education? Who can tell me? Daniel can tell me. What are the three R's of education, Daniel? There you go. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> arithmetic does not. It has an apostrophe on the front. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Are you paying attention here, Mercy? You weren't? So I want to I give you the three R's of hope. So click on to the next one. And, you know, we'll, we'll look at some of these passages, but if you're, uh, if you're into studying things and whatever, I mean, these are passages that are great for, for really getting a clear understanding of what it is that we hope in. So the three R's, and I even said the three R's times two. So hope of redemption or rescue, if you like a shorter word, the hope of resurrection or Jesus' return, and the hope of restoration or reign, which is we'll be with him forever, right? So those are, the, uh, those are kind of the, the three R's, and actually those all begin with R. So we made an improvement over reading, writing, and arithmetic. So let's look at the hope of redemption. That's a click. Okay. Redemption hope, saved from or and reborn, right? For the grace of God, this is Titus 2, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So redemption hope has to do with the hope of new life in Christ, right? Of our sins being forgiven, of our lives being transformed, redeemed from wickedness, from ungodliness, from worldly passions, to a life that is self-controlled, upright, godly, in light of the great future hope that we have in Jesus. So it's a, it's a life of process, right? It's, it's a, redemption is a process. You know, we are redeemed, but we're being redeemed, and we will be redeemed, right? We are saved, we're being saved, we're working out our salvation, and we will ultimately be saved. So it's this idea of process where we are being taught by God, as it says there, to become the people that he intends for us to be. So... It's 2012. Either the world's going to end at the end or it'll just continue on here. But as we look into the new year, as you kind of just take a look at 2012, kind of look ahead, are there any limits that you place on God regarding the promise and the process of redemption in your life, of redeeming you from your old life and of making you into somebody new, of adopting a new way to live? So I want you to just kind of have that question. Is there any way in which I limit God and this process that he wants to do in me to change me? Like, nope, I'm going to always be this way, right? 
The second hope is resurrection hope. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. 15 is, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is, if you want to understand the resurrection, spend some time in chapter 15. And you can spend some time in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 also. But the idea here is that Christ has been raised from the dead and he's going to come and grab a great harvest of all those who've died. So we're not without hope. And our hope is not for this life only, but our hope is in resurrection. Our hope is in him coming back. Continuing on, click. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, so the tent is referring to our bodies, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. So, you know, just, again, trying to get you a mental picture here. we got some kind of Bedouin tent or something out in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, Hearst Castle as just a contrast of earthly body, heavenly body, right? A tent and a heavenly home. And that's, it's, it's incomparably better what we will be inheriting in the resurrection and the bodies that we take on. Click on. So if we continue reading, we grow weary in our present bodies. The older you get, the wearier you get, right? And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So the point here is, you know, when we die, we don't just go to heaven and be with God, sort of like spirits floating around. It's a physical, the resurrected life is a physical life in a new spirit-infused body. Right? Not a spirit, not like smoke, but a body more substantial body than this body, right? Our bodies will look like, I think the way C.S. Lewis puts it, like we look like shadows. We look like wisps of smoke. And the real heavenly bodies are like, holy smokes. They're so (laughs) solid, right? They're so heavy. So, hey, that's good. That was a little, yeah. That was accidental. I'll be here till Thursday. Um, You know, we're not going to be spirits without bodies. Now, There is this little interim period, right, between the resurrection and the time that a person dies. So my dad passed away a couple years ago at his memorial service. I read this passage from 2 Corinthians 5 about being swallowed up by life. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, right, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's this idea that, you know, there is this time with God in paradise, but the body is in the ground, right? The resurrection hasn't happened. It doesn't happen until Jesus comes back. So there is that in-between period. I'll call that life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death, right? <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the ultimate life. It's his ultimate plan. And then in that, we have this hope of restoration, which is the third hope. Click on to the next one. So here in uh, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone also. Also gone, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. So you have this picture, right, of heaven and earth being joined, God present with his people. You know, now we need to go into that heaven's most holy place, right? We need to sort of take our our minds, our, our presence there, but we're not physically there, right? We're just told we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Here, it's combined. They come together. And everything is restored, right? Everything that we sort of know inside that's supposed to be, the way things are supposed to be in life, is, is made right, and it's renewed. Everything's being made new. Isaiah, go back to the Old Testament, says something very similar in Isaiah 25. Click on to the next one. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of doom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, This is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. I mean, that cloud of gloom, the shadow of death hangs over the earth, will be removed. And I think if you just sort of dwell on the earth and the state of the earth, you say, yeah, it's kind of a cloud of doom or gloom hanging over it, right, in the shadow of death. And there's just too much bad that goes on. And again, he's going to wipe away all the tears, right? So we can use our imagination, we can use our minds to think about that future that he's prepared for us, right? to have a clear idea in our minds of what's going to take place. And this is what I'm going to tell you is the substance of full hope, right? not vague hope. It's that he's come to redeem us, to change us, to renew us. When we die, that's not the end. He's going to come and gather up his people. He's going to bring them all together. He's going to be with them, with us. And he's going to renew everything. Everything that's wrong, everything that we know is wrong with life is going to be done away with. There will be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more suffering, no more dying, right? That's the hope that we have in Jesus. So, you know, when we're told to hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, that's the hope that we need to be affirming, right? It's the hope that our future is absolutely certain. And our present is looking pretty good as well, no matter what happens, right? No matter what happens. Okay. Just to conclude then, click. What can you do if uh, if you want to grow in hope? So this is my uh, ode to the old school here. Um, and it all comes from really right around the passage that we're looking at today. There's three ways that I would suggest that are foundational to becoming people who are clear in our hope, 
who have full hope. The Word, right? Spending time with the Word, prayer, and fellowship. And we'll look at uh, we'll look at that. There are other ways to grow, obviously. There's other ways in which we're changed as people. There's all kinds of different things that we need to do. But I would call those kind of the big three or the foundations of becoming mature in Him and of, of having that full hope. So we look at growing full hope in the Word. Click. Just the passage that Randy taught on last week. This is the covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So that's a promise, right? The new covenant has come. I mean, it's the new covenant mediated by Jesus in his blood. It's here. And he is promising to plant his word in our hearts and to inscribe it on our minds. That's a promise. It's what he intends to do. It's his will, right? It's his desire. So as you look into 2012, if you're you know, like, oh, Bible, I think I got one somewhere. Might need to dust it. Or, you know, it's just, it's hard. You know, I don't, I don't find that it's something that I can really hang with. It's just hard for me to get anything out of it. I would like to encourage you to make a commitment to just move in the direction of the Word and do it in the light of God's promise to plant the Word in us, right, to make it part of who we are. So, you know, if you don't have a Bible, talk to one of the pastors. We can, we can, I'm sure we can get you a Bible, but have a Bible and just pick something, right? Pick something. Pick like a gospel or pick Hebrews and open it up and read a few verses, and if you want, get a journal, right? Get something to write on, a tab, tab, you know, tablet of paper, and just read it. And if you don't understand it, write about it. I don't understand this, Lord. I don't really understand what you're saying. I don't get it, you know, but you've promised to plant your word in my heart. Open up my eyes to see. Open up my heart to receive, right? So just begin to move in that direction a little bit, just now and again, and you'll be amazed at what it will do for you. So that's kind of my first encouragement is to do that. Um, if you're a little more ambitious, you know, this guy, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, has written little guidebooks on every book in the New Testament. Just takes a little section of the Scripture, and he explains it. And he does a great job of explaining kind of how the early Christians understood things. And so it really helps you sort of get the historical context and what the, those early Christians were facing, you know, in their context with the Roman Empire and Jesus being crucified and all of that. And so, you know, Great devotional material. There's tons of devotional things. So that's my first encouragement is you know, just nibble a list a little bit on the word or take some big gulps. Second one is prayer. Click. So this is our passage for today, right? So dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For God, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So the way, the way I think about this is, you know, when you pray, right, you're not praying to the ceiling. Right? We can go right into the heaven's most holy place. I mean, so for me, I just imagine myself there. 
I don't have a great picture of it yet. I'm hoping that my imagination sort of you know, grows over time. But I picture myself there in front of Jesus. Sometimes I'll kneel. Sometimes I'll just sit. Sometimes if I'm in a bad place, I'll just lie down and be there, right? But I'm there in heaven's most holy place, and I have a conversation with Jesus about whatever. That's prayer, right? Prayer's not magical. It's not, you know, it doesn't require a certain form, but it just requires us to put ourselves there with him. So the second thing that we can do to build that hope is to go to that place and be there with him and talk to him. And tell them what's on your heart. Tell them I'm doubting this. Tell them I'm struggling with that. Right? Ask him to meet you. But in, you can go to that place. That's the thing. You don't sit there with your eyes closed, head bowed in the proper. Just go into that place and be with him. You'll find it to be very freeing. So I, I'm hoping that 2012 is a year where you can grow in intimacy with God. Because we don't. You know, like we're not praying through the skies, through the heavens, to the far side of the moon. We can go right in and be right there with Jesus. That's where he wants us to be. So we have that full access, and he's eager. Come, come to me. The third one is uh, fellowship. So we're in today's passage, you know, we have, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So this one is about being together with other people that are seeking God, right? And this is also a third and and essential part of growing into people of full hope. Because sometimes when we're all by ourselves or we're in our own little private Idaho, we get to be sort of paying a lot of attention to the doubting voices, right? Right? And we think, yeah, you know, and those are probably true, and boy, things are bad, etc. You know, all of us struggle at various times in life, and we need one another to sort of pick each other up, right? We all have our doubts. We all only understand in part. We need the perspectives of other people if we're going to have any hope of understanding. And, you know, the thing about this is if you think about God, we know him as Father, we know him as Son, we know him as spirit. We know him as community, right? He's in his very nature community, connected. Father, Son, and Spirit. So that three. And so we're designed as people to be in community. We're not designed as people to be all by ourselves, trying to struggle along. We're, we're designed to be with people. So if you've been kind of disconnected in the past, kind of disconnected to the body, and you just sort of, well, I'll just kind of struggle along and make my way. Maybe this year is a year in which you're going to commit yourself to being a little bit more connected to others. And, uh, you know, maybe you have to be a little more tolerant of others in order to do that because others can be kind of a pain in the rump sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a goodness and a design of God that we are intended to be together so that we can be motivated and encouraged to do things, right, to grow and to find out ways in which we can live out our faith. Okay, click. So hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. I've laid out what the promise of God is, right? We have a future that is 
wonderful beyond our ability to conceive. And we have God with us now. And he's actually said, all the barriers that used to exist between God and man, they're done. I've knocked them out. The blood has taken care of it. So come right in. There's nothing preventing you from doing that. There's nothing in the, in the way. He can be trusted to keep his promise. So I, Proverbs 3, 5, 5 and 6 is the one that people have memorized, right? It's a great promise of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. That's a promise, right? Trust in the Lord. Trust, faith, hope, all the same meaning there, with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, this is a big one for me because I'm Mr. Engineer who needs to understand things and why they don't work and why, what is it going to take to fix it. And, you know, I don't like problems. I like to fix problems. Having problems are quite annoying. And I'd like to understand a lot more than I understand. I don't understand a lot of things that go on. But here... You're not supposed to understand, right? We shouldn't even expect to be people that have understanding. We're told, don't lean on your understanding. Do not lean on your understanding. Don't lean on your understanding. Okay? That's how you're supposed to live. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. I've known this scripture for a long, long time, but I just sort of reflected on it, you know, that... Dang it, I'd like to understand. I'd like to understand. But, you know, we're supposed to live. That living by faith, you know, in full hope is not going to be a life of understanding everything. We're trusting, right? We're acknowledging him. God, I'm not you, right? You've got it all. I don't. I don't understand. And he'll direct. He'll direct our paths. That's a promise. It's a way to live. Okay, last click. So it's a new year. If your hope has been a little fuzzy, a little vague, this is the opportunity to clear it up, right? Just to go forward and not be fuzzy, not be vague. And today's the day to listen, not tomorrow, not next year. Today's the day maybe to turn a little bit, like if you're uh, one of those dots with the arrow and you're sort of going this away, you know, turn a little bit towards the center. You've been nudged in any area. Like if the Spirit has nudged you, then what I want to encourage you is to tell somebody about it, right? I'll be done here in just a second. Tell somebody, I felt this, right? I thought about that. And let them pray with you. Let them pray for you to kind of seal the move of God because he desperately wants to connect with us, right? He's longing for us to come to him. And he's done everything that needs to be done to make that possible. And he wants us to be people that move around this world so full of hope that it's just kind of spilling out of us, right? That we're not those worried people. We're not those doubting people. We're not those people that are like, oh, me, who's going to come into power? And, you know, we're just people of hope, full hope. And we live by faith and we don't understand everything. But we cling to God because he's made it possible for us to do that. So let me pray. God, I pray that you would... uh, Take these words and let's stick in our hearts whatever it is that you want to stick, right? It was a lot, of, uh, a lot of ideas here. But the idea of your blood, 
basically flinging open, wide open the doors of heaven and access to you with a simple one to grasp onto. And the desire for us to be people of hope, Lord, and to trust you, and to trust in your promises. And so I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, and that you would help us to move in a direction that's towards you. And I pray, God, that um, whatever nudging that you do, that we'll, uh, we'll have the, the willingness and the faith to just go tell somebody about it and to, to have that sealed in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for the word. Thank you for your blood poured out on Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen.